This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, we are so excited and grateful today to be speaking with Dr. Bonnie Clipper. Dr. Clipper is the Chief Clinical Officer of WAMBI. She's an expert in the nursing innovation space and the first Vice President of Innovation for the American Nurses Association and created the innovation framework that's inspiring millions of registered nurses to transform health through nurse-led innovation. Prior to that, Dr. Clipper spent more than 20 years in executive nursing roles She's a top influencer and speaks internationally on nurse-led innovation and the future of nursing. Eric, I think our listeners are in for a great treat as they're going to gain many words of wisdom from Dr. Clipper today. What can I say in addition to that? I mean, Dr. Bonnie Clipper, such a great guest on our show today, and it happens to be Nurses Week. And we couldn't have had a better guest to really talk about nursing and innovation. She actually even wrote the Amazon international bestseller, The Nurse's Guide to Innovation. And she wrote another book called The Nurse's Manager's Guide to an Intergenerational Workforce. Now in her work with Wambi, which is a company that provides holistic real-time recognition and culture transformation around this whole healthcare experience that we're trying to figure out in value-based care, they're really focused on that power of gratitude and how do you hardwire that into a culture through gamified engagement and technology. Such an incredible episode, Daniel. I cannot tell you how much I learned from her today and just understanding the nursing profession better, the role of empathy and gratitude, workforce engagement, how we go about reducing clinician burnout, moral injury, how do we drive outcomes in this new value-based economy? So without further ado, let me just hand it over to Bonnie as she joins us today during Nurses Week in this Race to Value. Bonnie Clipper, welcome to Race to Value. It is so great to have you today. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, Bonnie, I thought you're on the Race to Value podcast. So let's jump to the, the heart of what's on many people's minds and those listening to this podcast, this journey towards value-based care. How do we better position the nursing profession uh, you know, as a thought leader in nursing innovation, I'm really interested in your thoughts on the role of nurses in this value-based care movement. I mean, nurses are so pivotal in leading change in our industry to make this seismic shift from volume to value-based care. There really has to be some intention around how do we redesign the delivery of healthcare services to support team-based care and nurses are really going to have to practice in their full scope of their education and their training and step into leadership roles. And, you know, I just can't help but think there was this IOM report, Institute of Medicine report called the future of nursing, leading change and advancing health. And that was about 10 years ago. And the goal at that time was to have 10,000 nurses on boards by 2020 
And it really created an opportunity for the industry to, to think about how you include the unique perspective of nurses to really achieve the goals of improved societal health outcomes. So Bonnie, I just thought as we start today, you know, how should the nursing profession mobilize around this imperative to advance our healthcare system to one that's more value-based and having nurses leading change and addressing these issues of high costs and excessive profiteering and high rates of medical errors and poor outcomes from a population health perspective and addressing, you know, the alarming rates of racial disparities. What would you say to those who want the nursing profession just to stay focused on caring for acute illnesses at the patient bedside instead of really stepping up and demanding societal and industry reforms? So first, let's start with what it is nurses do and how we can amplify their role. So when you think about it, nurses are with patients and families more than any other discipline. And from a numbers perspective, there are four times as many nurses as physicians, eight times as many nurses as pharmacists. So they're really that biggest bulk of the healthcare professional workforce. So when you think about it from a nursing perspective, because they are with patients and families more than any other discipline, they have the opportunity to completely transform the way that care is delivered and also the way that we view health. So most of the time, people think about nurses as delivering direct patient care at the bedside in acute care settings like hospitals, right? We also know they're in outpatient settings and they're in many other places along the care continuum, whether it's post-acute care, such as skilled care, assisted living, long-term care, and they're also in home care. We have nurses in schools, uh, which is something that hopefully we've seen the value in over the course of the pandemic and will increase yet again the number of nurses in schools. So at any rate, I want to go back to what it is nurses do. So often people think that nurses just have this very narrow scope, whereas they just kind of do what someone else orders or someone else says. While there's a degree of truth in that, nurses also operate within their scope of practice and standards of care, and they're pretty incredible problem solvers and bring so much to the table when it comes to caring for a patient or their family. They're very involved in care coordination, care management. They're also involved a lot in navigating or helping patients access different uh, aspects of care, whether it might be a specialist or a procedure or a treatment. So it's nurses that are involved in so many of those conversations. When you think about this in terms of value, because nurses are such good problem solvers, they also have a very good and general understanding of healthcare. And while they might not know the exact dollars and cents, they know that inpatient procedures cost more than outpatient procedures. And in many cases, they do know exactly what things cost. So they're pivotal in this whole equation of where patients receive their care and how care happens. So the question is, what do you do with that? Nurses so often work, as, as of course we all know, they're part of a team. So we can inform the care of whoever the provider is that's directing that, whether it's a physician, a nurse practitioner, a PA, they can inform that so we can direct patients to the more cost-effective solutions. I also think that one of the things that we've seen as a result of COVID is a, a true exponential increase in virtual care and telehealth. Nurses are so often the ones that are filling these positions right now and providing this care on the other end of the phone or the computer or the laptop. So they're very, very involved in this equation already. You also brought in there very nicely the IOM report from many years ago, and of course there's, there was a future of nursing report, and now there's actually another future of nursing update that is currently being crafted. And part of that work was really to get a sense of where do nurses fit in this big picture and how do we leverage the role that nurses bring? Because they're incredible problem solvers, they're leaders in the transformation space, and literally every day they are leading and managing this huge workforce, providing patient care or health care. So you mentioned at one point the drive to get 10,000 nurses on boards. We've done that. 
And now the push is to get to continue that work because we're seeing the benefit of having nurses on corporate boards and advisory boards, literally with their hands in the pot, being involved in the design and the development of these new ideas, whether it's a new care model, whether it's some kind of payment plan or payor, or it's some kind of device or technology, having nurses involved at the very start, making sure that we're solving the right problem is so critically important. Well, fantastic, Bonnie. I, I really appreciate the thoughtful response. And, you know, I have a, a follow-up question just in thinking about this value-based care movement. And obviously there's a big focus on health equity within that equation. But so so many times the industry, when they think about this value-based care movement, they're thinking about the design of these APMs and how to realign the economics of medicine to make sure that it offers the right incentives. And then we think about HIT. And I, I really want to dive into maybe the, the competencies that are going to be required for the nursing workforce of the future. It really does seem like in this new paradigm that we're entering within value-based care, there's going to be a, a different way to deliver care. It's going to be more interdisciplinary, collaborative. You're going to have a more holistic approach to managing patients and spanning the boundary of the brick and mortar of the clinic or the hospital and thinking about what's going on in the patient's homes and this healthcare transformation that needs to happen within the competency of the team, organizations are going to have to have a priority and a focus around reskilling and upskilling of the workforce, which includes nurses. And I just think about the challenge of that. And then that coupled with this nursing shortage that we've had for years, you know, and I think about we have to have true changes and how we improve staffing and the, the pay for nurses so that we can recalibrate the workforce in terms of supply, in terms of competency, and then also the technology component. If we address all those things, also how do we leverage AI and robotics and machine learning maybe to also transform the way care is delivered. So Bonnie, if you could maybe speak to your thoughts on that, how can we leverage technology as a force multiplier? Think about the workforce itself and the competency and, and, and really redesign as we're redesigning the healthcare system. How can we also look at the nursing workforce itself and address some of the, the, the really readily apparent needs that have been on the forefront for all these years? So from an educational perspective, this most recent generation of nurses has been trained in a very interdisciplinary manner from the get-go. So back in nursing school, they have been working with other disciplines. And, and nowadays, it is very common for nursing students, medical students, PT students, RT students to even be taking things like their undergraduate chemistries, biologies, anatomy, physiology, those kind of things together, which is brilliant because that sets the tone that it's truly a team of equals and everyone has a different job. So that's been a real nice transition that we've seen happen in education over the last 10 to even 15 years. So that piece of it is already in place. What is going to have to continue to shift is certainly a, the sense that providing nurses with the understanding and the knowledge about the business of healthcare isn't a bad thing. For so many years, we really thought that nurses shouldn't worry about um, the money, the accounting, the economics, but rather focus on patient care. We've come to learn that the two are intertwined and can't really be untangled. And it isn't a bad thing to understand the larger picture from an economic perspective. So I, I think we're going to need to see more of that that is imported into the nursing school programs. We also are going to have to see some upgraded competencies in things such as climate science, because we know they play a role in health. We're also going to have to talk about violence and guns, right? It, it is a public health issue, and it, it does. It has found its way into health. So it's, it's important for us to be able to address that. We're going to have to talk about big data, data analysis, AI, and not just what it is, but a little bit about how it works because it is going to be part of 
every nurse's toolkit. So I think those pieces are incredibly important. I'm also going to say that from a nursing education perspective, I'm a huge proponent of um, virtual reality or even mixed reality, where I believe that we are only a year or two or three away from nursing programs sending each student their Oculus loaded with that semester's scenarios and competency assessments and even some didactic content in addition to their textbooks, right? Because I just think that, that it's going to become inseparable learning content and then managing sort of the muscle memory of critically thinking your way through a scenario. So I see those changes being necessary in the education or preparation of nurses. You also talked about um, health equity. And I think that this pandemic has been tragic and it's been terrible and the loss of life is, is just inexcusably crazy. However, I also think that it has been the catalyst that we've needed for so many changes and disruptions. And that's very true in healthcare. I don't know that we would have seen the adoption of telehealth and virtual care without this disruption. So I think that has pushed us years ahead just by force. And I believe that we aren't going to slide entirely backward. Maybe we're going to slide back a notch or two, but we are not going to go back to where we started. And primarily because not only are patients satisfied and very happy about the convenience and the quality and the outcomes of telehealth, but so are providers. They are able to see more and do more, and they're able to bill for that. So we really would actually change things in a negative way if we were to slide backwards. So I think we're going to have to teach not only nurses, but certainly other healthcare professionals, what does the world look like when you might be providing care for patients via telehealth on a regular routine basis? What does the world look like when your inpatients might also be on remote patient monitoring or RPM? How does that work? Because we're going to have to get past the kind of the big brother creepy feeling, and we're going to have to begin to utilize those tools as ways to make our care better, cheaper, faster, more accessible, and with better outcomes that reduce errors. So there's a tremendous opportunity in that space. I also um, see us moving our workforce, and you really kind of teed up a, a nice question there about workforce and staffing and such. If you think about it, we have been talking in nursing for many years that we are over a million nurses short. So that is something that we are going to have an extremely difficult time in this uphill climb wrapping our arms around that, right? And there's a variety of reasons for that. We've seen retirements, we've seen nurses change roles, and even as a result of COVID, there have been several surveys that have been conducted. And within those surveys, we do see some very alarming trends that nurses are looking at leaving the bedside in increased numbers over their typical turnover type run rate. So for us, there are a lot of red flags here. When we talk about the workforce, knowing that the need for nurses continues to grow and the supply diminishes, it does not seem to me that there is any way around this equation other than finding ways to amplify or multiply the force that we already have. And there are ways to do that. And as you can imagine, some of those are um, things that we don't want to talk about very much or things that we don't like to hear because we're a very traditional profession and we view things through kind of a myopic lens. So in my opinion, when we talk about staffing, we get our feathers pretty ruffled when we talk about staffing ratios, right? That seems to be the holy grail of staffing is what's the ratio how many patients per nurse and in what area? For example, in med surge, are we talking about five patients, six patients per nurse, seven patients per nurse? What does that number look like? I think we're going about this all wrong. I think there are absolutely ways 
that we are going to um, amplify nurses through technology. Some of that is going to be around using um, technology such as artificial intelligence to help make us smarter and make our work easier. And that's going to help us on things that, for example, identifying patients that could be preceptic before our human eyes and ears might see or think that they're going to become septic. Same kind of thing with patients with arrhythmias. There are currently AI programs out there that kind of creep along in our electronic health records and actually can predict with pretty high accuracy a patient that's going to throw a lethal arrhythmia before it happens. So if you think about that, that could allow us as nurses to scale and actually care for more patients and supplementing us with non-licensed personnel. Maybe we it bring LVNs back into the equation because we've been through this 15 to 20 year effort to actually not use LVNs or LPNs in acute care. Seems to me that it could be time to bring them back into the equation with the registered nurse sort of directing and delegating that work and utilizing more non-licensed personnel and technology to really help us provide the care that we need to for patients. The other piece of that is that we are so often accustomed to patients receiving their care as acute care hospital inpatients. That too is changing. We're seeing more patients receive their care as outpatients or in the home. So as all of these pieces move around, the workforce of course is gonna have to disperse accordingly and that will follow. So I think there are several changes that we are going to see across the board, both with supply and demand and technology and where care is provided. So a lot of moving pieces to that equation. You also mentioned pay, resources, things of that nature. Nursing so often is treated as a commodity. Nursing services are built into the room charge in hospitals. So nurses aren't actually paid for, if you will, for the value that they bring in the care paradigm, but rather built into the room rate, which is kind of crazy nowadays. There really should be a very sound way to account for the services and the value that nurses bring. Physicians charge for their service and nursing services built into the room rate. So it feels like that's another antiquated uh, paradigm that needs to change. And I, I don't profess to have the answer to that. And I know people are working on it, but that really seems something that's kind of important. And from a pay perspective, I think we've done the nursing profession a disservice by treating it as kind of a commodity-based profession because nurses jump ship for literally dollars and cents. And I don't think that's smart in the long run for the nurses as a whole, nor is it smart for the organization. It seems like there's some kind of a better model that can be developed. And what I will tell you, Eric, is that we are seeing right now a very dramatic shift happening as younger nurses are moving away from the old traditional employer loyalty model, whereas you used to work for a hospital, make sure they had good benefits, make sure you like the, the manager, the director, and then essentially you commit yourself to that organization. What we're seeing now is a huge shift of young nurses that are actually moving into agencies, if you will, because they are acting as their own personal agent for them to get placed in the organizations that they want to work at. Perhaps in the winter, if you are from someplace like Minneapolis, maybe you wanna go work in California, Arizona, Florida, and vice versa in, in the summer months. So we're seeing in a real increase of nurses that are working with agencies. They get to manage their careers. They get to manage where they work. And there are even contracts that have been in place over the last year that I'm aware of where the contract would guarantee that the nurse would have enough PPE to safely do their job or they could quit their contract. So we've put the nurse in the driver's seat, which I think is very smart. And I will tell you years ago, I actually wrote a book on intergenerational management and how we can get the different demographic groups kind of working in harmony to their best ability in the workplace. 
and younger nurses vote with their feet. And I love that about them because I think that they have the courage that so many of us haven't had in our career. So I think it's really going to disrupt healthcare a lot in and of itself. Bonnie, you mentioned earlier that nurses are the perfect innovators, that they've, they're just born and in, in, in positions that allow them to contribute to this innovation that's happening. And, and to speak to that, you know, the value-based movement is kind of like this ultimate opportunity for innovation. It's going to require so much innovation. But here we are with unprecedented levels of investment that are happening in new technology and new services. We've got this movement in the market with partnerships and joint ventures like never before and mergers and acquisitions. And the landscape is ripe for innovation. And you've said that nurses are innovators and you've shared examples in in previous conversations and, and things that you've written about nurses inventing things like the crash cart and feeding tubes, for example. And of course, we can't neglect thinking about the originator of the nursing profession, Florence Nightingale, and her pioneering work around the spread of infection. And so there's there's a term that you use for nurse innovators, entrepreneurs. And, and you also wrote a book about nursing innovation. And so I, I was hoping you could talk to us about why nurses make such great innovators. And and as we think about beyond just innovating ideas that might become a new business line or a new product, you know, nurses can innovate inside of their current roles and with their current employers. And what do you say to value-minded leaders? What are the things that they need to know about leveraging their nursing workforce and that workforce's motivations and their knowledge and the things that'll help the system create more human-centered design that will lead to better patient outcomes and lower costs? Yeah, nurses are incredible problem solvers and critical thinkers. And the reason for that is that we're so committed to just doing what it takes to provide good patient care. So that means that we have to be able to innovate on the fly and think on our feet to do what it takes to care for our patient. If things don't work the way they're supposed to, if you don't have the equipment you need, you have to figure out how to MacGyver it, right? So nurses are incredible at figuring things out. So the way to harness the power that nurses bring to innovation and we wrote about this in our book, The Nurse's Guide to Innovation. It's really to create a culture of innovation. And that means you have to empower people to problem solve. You have to listen to their ideas. You have to help them escalate things that may be beneficial, that might be paradigm shifts or solutions or changes to existing problems. So we have to create an environment that we take the time to listen and then help them do something with that work. During the pandemic, as we saw in literally in horror as this unfolded a year ago on our TV sets, you know, nurses were innovating by printing, 3D printing face shields for themselves because there wasn't enough PPE. Nurses in California literally brought in their own baby monitors from home and put them in patient rooms so they could listen to their patients and minimize the number of times that they went in to check on the patients. Nurses strung together multiple extension sets of IV tubing so that they could keep the pumps outside the doors and change a drip rate or a flow rate with a patient attached to the other end and keep themselves safe. We saw nurses that have repurposed iPads and tablets to literally be a one push button dial in directly to a nurse for help or questions. Nurses are incredible innovators and so often are not given the due or the time for their work in the innovation space. And they have so much to contribute, not only that's gonna add value, but also that is gonna improve patient care. So I do think that's incredibly important. I think too that we are gonna see more of that because younger people are actually hardwired just to jump in and fix things from the get-go. So for nurses that have been in nurses for a while, maybe that's boomer nurses, maybe even um, XR nurses, a lot of times there's sort of the wait for permission there to get involved and jump in and offer solutions or do things. 
And younger nurses kind of think, heck with that, I'm just going to fix it or I'm just going to do something. So it's really a lot about the culture. And of course, there are, there are guardrails in place. There are policies and procedures for a reason. And we also know that we can continue to improve care, make it more accessible and make it cheaper by some of these innovations and new ideas. It's really crazy cool because there are nurses in the last five years that are actually multi, multi-millionaire nurses from building and selling their own very innovative companies. So we don't hear about that much, but there are nurses out there that are actually doing that kind of work. You talked a little bit, Daniel, about human-centered design. That's something that I believe we're going to see taught in nursing schools and in medical schools and, and in the other professions as well. Because you can imagine that healthcare is the most human of all industries, and we're kind of among the last in terms of teaching human-centered design. So it, it really is something that fits in nicely with how we produce caregivers and care providers. So it is something that we're going to have to dive into more deeply so people actually understand it more and can use it to help redesign care and health. Well, Bonnie, I think about the importance of human-centered design and, you know, healthcare is just such a, a human-focused industry. And, you know, nurses widely are known for their empathy and their compassion. And you could ask any nurse and the vast majority of them are going to tell you that the reason why they went into the nursing profession was because of this sense of altruism and wanting to give back. And I think about the passion and the altruism that these nurses have and how they become almost beleaguered and, and downtrodden when they enter into a broken system and years and years go by and, and they just sometimes invariably any human in a broken system is going to become a little bit broken themselves. And I reflect back on a podcast episode that we did with a good friend of mine, Sugandan Bharati, and he was a patient. He was from India and uh, he had a, a terrible car accident and, you know, he, it was some negligence that happened, but long story, he ended up in the ICU for about a month and, and he was telling me how transactional and sterile and almost robotic the care was. And, and he really went through some dark nights of the soul and he had this nurse come to him and many of the nurses, they were great and wonderful to him, but he just thought they were so overworked and really didn't have the time to tune in to his holistic healing and well-being and he had this one nurse come to him and she was also in of Indian descent and she said I'm really concerned for you and how much painkillers you're taking I mean there, there's serious issues in becoming addicted to these opioids and and he was convinced that it was because of the connection that she had with him culturally so I think about the nursing workforce and how important it is to have not only that empathy to really see things from other perspectives, but also the cultural competency to better relate to patients. I mean, the research out there really shows that having culturally competent care from a nursing workforce or physicians and other providers that have the attributes of the population to which they serve, it improves outcomes, it improves health literacy. You see that in lower rates of admission, better patient engagement, reductions in hospitalizations and readmissions. So I think about this important opportunity that we have in our industry as we're looking to reshape the industry and redesign care delivery to be more human-centered and, and proceed in value-based care and form important partnerships with higher education and nursing programs. If you could maybe speak to you know, your own views on providing culturally competent care and, and where the nursing profession may seek to take a, a lead role in, in really driving that change that's so necessary to, to change the, the shifting demographics in our country so we can truly eliminate disparities in care that we're seeing across uh, different segments of our society. I'd be really interested to kind of hear your, your personal views on that. Yeah, so I think that that's clearly a challenge, right? And when we talk about culturally competent care, that is at its best, that is still never going to be a, a replacement for someone of your own culture with deep knowledge from birth caring for you, right? 
So there are a couple ways, I, I believe, for us to do it and, and maybe to do it better. And, and one of the ways that I think we can do that is using something, again, I'm going to go back to technology, but using something like virtual reality, where we can build scenarios that not only test your muscle memory and your critical thinking and problem solving skills, but we also can build those around things like implicit bias or DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and build scenarios for culturally competent care that are wired that way. So it will allow us to test our answers, test our verbiage, test our responses, test our communication skills, while we work through those scenarios. So I do think that's something that will help us get more proficient and better. We will never be perfect at delivering that culturally competent care without having a truly deep, deep down understanding, but we can improve that. The other things that you touched on that I do think are important for people to realize is that hospitals generate profits. And the way that they do that, of course, I mean, every business needs to exist. So I completely understand that. But the way that that happens mostly is based upon labor, right? It's That's the biggest expense in providing care is quite often labor, largest chunk of it. And the, and the biggest bulk of the labor in the workforce in healthcare are nurses. We use systems that we call um, productivity systems that literally measure for a, a patient day, right? If you have 12 patients on a unit in one 24 hour period, that's 12 patient days. So we think about things in terms of productivity. So how many nurses does it take to provide certain hours of care or certain patient days? And when we get into that type of accounting, it is difficult for us to go beyond in the way that we used to many, many years ago, because they truly are hustling every shift, every single day. Now, that's not an excuse at all for people not being empathetic and compassionate. And I would also say, we also don't want to exploit that. You know, the days of the nurses in starched white and maybe even, you know, that vision of a nurse wearing a cap and giving you a back rub at night or, you know, spending lots and lots of time with you, those days are over. It doesn't mean that we can't be empathetic, incredibly powerful, strong care providers and caregivers and professionals. It just means that it's a very different time. And you can kind of see how the expectation has level set itself a little bit when you see different generations of patients, because quite honestly, they have different expectations. So I was a chief nursing officer for 20 years, and it, it's an incredible opportunity to see people at their most vulnerable when they're receiving care. And it's such a privilege to be able to provide that for them. And in seeing that, you really could get a sense of our older patients really had a very different perspective and expectation of what care was like in hospitals compared to younger patients that literally want to get in and get out. So it's kind of different depending on who that patient uh, and even their support system might be. But you're spot on. Things definitely have continued to evolve over the last many years, and they're still going to. This doesn't just stop. So I think they're still going to. And we're going to have to figure out a way to use technology and make sure that we're compassionate. So it, it's not an either or, I see it as an and. It's a high tech and a high touch kind of scenario. Bonnie, I wanna continue thinking about how much work nursing is. It's such a hard job. And my clinical experience comes from my wife. It's kind of through osmosis. She's a nurse and I've seen the challenges that she goes through every day and it's a hard job physically, emotionally, mentally, and lately it's been harder. We've been living through difficult, unprecedented times during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I was reviewing some research published by the National Center for Biotechnology Information, where the researchers write that the frontline healthcare professionals experience numerous and continuous traumatic events, 
And in many instances, these events will negatively affect the caregiver's psychological well-being. And particularly, they've been facing these extraordinary challenges that you've given us some insight into. We've seen things like shifting protocols, triage, shortages of resources, and astonishing numbers of patients that require care in expedited time constraints. And we think about how compassionate these nursing professionals are and this growing sense of frustration and powerlessness when they find themselves unable to provide the needed care to the patients. And then add that to overwhelming numbers of deaths, patients isolated, dying alone, and the nurse's own ever-present fear of being infected and, and then infecting others due to lack of protective gear or protocols. And all of this takes this significant emotional and psychological toll on well-being. And much like you talked about COVID being this awakening to systemic problems around equity and care, might the same thing be happening for nurses in our society as we've seen this designation of nurses and other healthcare workers as heroes. We've seen images, the before and after shots of nurses with apparent physical injury and recognizing that society is becoming more aware of the challenges that these professionals are facing. Might this be a historic moment that awakens our nation to the challenges of moral injury, burnout, compassion, fatigue, and then propels us into taking necessary steps to address it? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the topic. What are you seeing being done or not done to address the challenges across the industry for moral injury? And what kind of education, coping tools, therapy is needed for these professionals? Yeah, Daniel, that's a, a really great set of questions. The pandemic has been brutal on healthcare professionals and healthcare workers, right? Not just the professionals that are providing or directing the care, but even environmental services and food services, people that work in healthcare. It's been brutal. We just yesterday, there was a report out that 3,600 healthcare workers have died so far in the United States as a result of COVID, which in my opinion is completely unacceptable. So when you think about this, any healthcare professional, seeing the number of patients die that we've seen this year, that's well above and beyond what you would ever see on a normal routine basis or ever expect to see. So of course, there are implications to that. Nurses, physicians, RTs, all of the disciplines, they're human beings. And at some point, besides the crazy powerful fear factor of just getting infected yourself and, and becoming very sick, it's hard as heck seeing that many patients die and not only die, but die alone. So many of them don't even get to have their family sitting there holding their hand. It's the nurse that's there with them. So the moral injury is just profound that has been a side effect of this. And certainly from a compassion fatigue perspective, people are wiped. Literally, if we could sort of put the period at the end of the sentence and say, COVID's over, we're done, let's start a new chapter, it would have been done, right? It's just, we're of course not there from a public health pandemic perspective, but healthcare professionals are so ready to be over this, but yet we're not. So if you think about it, moral injury in and of itself is, is really pretty profound. And it just means that we've done damage at some point to one's conscious or moral compass based on what they've seen or, or what they've been part of. So the death, the number of really extremely critically ill patients, patients dying alone, that continues to affect our health professionals. And the results of that is really, it's kind of called, you know, moral injury. So I was having a conversation this week with a really amazing nurse leader, and we were talking about that. And one of the areas of leadership that is growing very quickly right now is something that's actually called trauma-informed leadership. And it's really a way to understand or appreciate that there are a whole lot of experiences that everyone is carrying right now. And many of them are in fact, direct results of the workplace, right? And they're triggered by the workplace. So you can imagine that you have these really strong emotions from being at work. And every time you come back to work, they're almost re-triggered. So it's sort of PTS every day over and over. And it's a way to be a leader that recognizes that and kind of starts there 
working with the knowledge that people do have sort of this underlying emotional trauma and helping them work through these scenarios on a regular basis as they even lead these groups. So there is a whole lot of work uh, in leadership across the country that we are really trying to get our bearings about what's the best way to lead and how can we offer support to staff, whatever that staff person might be. So that's been something that's kind of new in the last nine months that we're really trying to, to figure out. From a resilience perspective, we know that resilience is the way that we protect ourselves as humans to kind of go back into the lion's den day after day, right? Whether you practice mindfulness or yoga, or you go for a run, or you take a hike, or you shore up your relationships on the outside of, of your work environment, all of those things contribute to making you a more resilient human being. Yet that's not the only thing that it's going to take to get through this. And, and in fact, I was talking to some nurses just a couple of weeks ago, and they kind of said in a tongue-in-cheek but not entirely joking way, if one more person wants to offer me a free app or free food or you know yoga to like be more resilient, I'm going to scream because that isn't the only thing that's going on. I mean, there really is a lot of emotion that people are going to have to work through. I understand from another leader conversation that some organizations have really stepped up their EAP offerings. I uh, had a conversation with a really neat guy who is a CEO of a chaplain company, chaplaincy, I guess, company. And they're seeing their, I'm going to use the word order, but the orders for chaplains are increasing because people just want to have someone to talk to. And this person reminded me that while most of our healthcare organizations have done away with full-time chaplains because, uh, you know, it was a, a cost savings over the last 10 or maybe even 15 years, the number one client of chaplains weren't the patients, but it was the staff because they could just round on them and check in and see how people were doing. And if as a chaplain would round on a unit and someone would be very tearful, they could pull them into the break room and have a conversation. Most of that's gone. So the only way for those really deep, heartfelt, emotional conversations to happen is for a nurse to actually make an appointment, usually on their off day, and then either jump on a phone call or a FaceTime or a telehealth visit and do that. It's, it's a little less convenient than it used to be, but that's the kind of work that is going to have to happen to help us get through this. And it is likely, very likely, that the trauma from this is never going to leave us, nor is it ever going to leave our healthcare professionals. It will always be with them and inform their care and their relationships going forward. Bonnie, I couldn't agree more. There's such a profound level of emotional trauma and this moral injury that's happening. And there's this compassion fatigue, particularly in the nursing workforce as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, which you articulated. You know, I, I just can't help but think, you know, there's ways to overcome this and, you know, looking at what is available in our society, you know, with regard to not only the, the human element and looking at redesigning systems as a post-COVID way of delivering care more efficiently, but there's also this technology enablement that needs to happen. And I think that is what, as I understand what Wambi is trying to address. I mean, your company, you know, I saw this video that you really shed light on how impactful these unseen moments are in healthcare. And it, it, you know, just recognizing that gratitude is felt, but not always expressed. And you have, as I understand, a, a really innovative, holistic, real-time cultural transformation solution that's really improving that experience for healthcare providers and the patients to which they serve. And it really focuses on that power of gratitude and having that 
gamified tech enabled model for engagement where you can deliver feedback from patients and team members and really motivate the team to provide more optimal care. I'd love to better understand that and, and, you know, help our listeners understand where solutions like yours can really improve workforce engagement, reduce that burnout, and then really drive better levels of patient satisfaction and ultimately improve outcomes and that human connection that we all need within the healthcare environment. Yeah, Eric, you know, Wambi is the amazing brainchild of Alex Corin. She had two chronically ill parents. And since she spent so much time in and out of the hospitals with them, even as a kid, she often saw people, you know, hurry into the room and do something with a parent and then kind of hurry back out of the room. And it was difficult to get a sense of, you know, why people were always in such a hurry. And sometimes they just didn't see like they were real happy or willing to have a conversation or spend too much time in there with her parent. And it wasn't until she actually took a job as a director of patient experience in a hospital and learned that caregivers are incredibly busy and rushed and hurried all the time. And because they're human beings, they really can't tuck all of their experiences and feelings and emotions down as deeply as they would like. And on top of that, so much of what care providers, caregivers, health professionals hear about are the things that they didn't do well. They're not always tapped on the shoulder by a leader to say, hey, you were amazing today. So she actually began to develop this platform herself. And in fact, we do completely focus on the positive. So it doesn't mean we don't take feedback because our platform actually serves three functions, right? Our goal is to reduce clinician burnout, to enhance the patient experience, and to improve staff engagement. And the way that we do that is we have a gamified app. Patients and families can provide real-time recognition and feedback. And it's also gamified for the end user, whether it's a nurse, a physician, a leader, they too have a gamified dashboard. And what we're able to do is to match make. So the comments and the feedback, everything that's positive goes directly through to the dashboard of the end user, whether it's a nurse or a registrar or a physician, it would go right on through to them. Anything that's less than positive will pause at the manager to evaluate the comment. Sometimes there's a, a mismatch in turn of personalities, you know, healthcare professionals and patients, and sometimes it's a real issue, but maybe it wasn't the caregivers or the health professionals issue. Maybe they couldn't control that the food was an hour late or they came back from their procedure too late to see their family or something. So we want to really make sure that the comments that are forwarded on are the comments that make the most sense to have the best impact on the recipient. So the way that we operate is that we harvest the feedback and it goes directly on through to the end user and the leader sees it as well. The leader can see who's getting feedback, who's getting recognition, who's getting comments, and they're aware of that. They also can see who's not getting comments. So as a leader, then it sort of opens the door to questions. Is there something that Eric's doing that's awesome, but maybe Daniel isn't doing as well? Do I need to just check in and make sure Daniel's doing okay? So it really gives leaders a new sense of tools in their tool belt to check in and make sure all their staff are doing okay. It also helps to inform the patient experience so much more. And in fact, we found that there are direct correlations with what we're able to harvest. And to some degree, it is a good predictor of what you can see coming in your HCAPS data. And HCAPS, as you know, can be anywhere from four days later till you know months later whereas ours is real time. So it's a really neat way to get a glimpse into what your patients and their families are thinking about the care they're receiving. And it's done in a very positive way so that those that are the recipients like to get it. Bonnie, I'm really interested in what you said about the HCAP scores and this idea that uh, this process can be used as a leading indicator for those HCAP scores. And I think there's some applicability to how this might also help your organizations understand retention rates, turnover, clinician burnout, and even go so far as to help you predict performance and quality scores or lower costs. Have you 
done any work around tying these leading indicators into other outcomes like these? Yeah, Daniel, that's an awesome question. We have done some work looking at the correlations of our WAMBI data as it compares to some of the HCAPS data. We did a study with one of our client organizations, and we focused on the physician communication questions and the nurse communication questions, and we saw very strong correlations between the WAMBI data and the HCAPS data. And of course, because the WAMBI data is real time. It essentially can give you some insight into what you can expect coming down the road. Now, that also means that you would need that exact patient or those exact patients to take the HCAPs. So we couldn't test and compare what did that exact patient actually do in their HCAPs review. But generally speaking, we do see a very strong correlation between the WAMBI data as a predictor of the HCAPs. The other thing we did was a study with another client and we looked at turnover rates and they were using WAMBI and really the goal for them was not only to improve the patient experience, but they really wanted to increase staff engagement because staff have the ability to communicate laterally with each other and recognize each other in addition to patients and families recognizing them. So they really started putting a lot of effort into building a culture of gratitude where people were just thanking each other for simple things. And while it might seem oversimplified, it's incredibly powerful. So getting in the habit of thanking someone for helping you turn a patient or get a patient situated back from the OR or bring a meal tray into a patient because you're busy, when you can start to thank your peers, your colleagues in a really easy way, that is the start of building a culture of gratitude. And those cultures are demonstrated to increase staff engagement. And what we saw in this organization is that we were able to help them contribute to a significantly lower turnover rate because people actually did feel appreciated and they felt valued. And they also really felt strongly that their work had meaning. And that was a nice change that we were able to see. Bonnie, you've really exemplified for me where your success comes from. And, and I want to take all that we've heard from you today and apply this to our thinking about women in leadership roles. According to a report from the Association of American Medical Colleges, we recently crossed a significant milestone which is for the first time, more women than men are going into medical school. And 80% of our healthcare workforce is women, and 90% of nurses are women. But when you compare that to what I was reading in modern healthcare, that only 19% of hospitals and only 4% of health companies are led by women, there's a significant gap. And I just want to reiterate that you're such a wonderful example of women in leadership roles, and you've been able to balance a family and an impressive career full of significant accomplishments. And, and I'd like to ask you to share what lessons you've learned that you could pass on as an inspiration to the many women who are looking to you as a hero and as an example. And, and I have to acknowledge that, that as a man, I wouldn't have been successful in my career without the incredible support of women who kind of allowed me the chance to grow and to lead. And so what's your message to men in healthcare and the role that they have in supporting women and making space for women to succeed. What will it take for organizations to make strides in addressing the underrepresentation of women in senior leadership roles? First off, let me say that you are much too kind. There are tons of nurse leaders out there that are like me or better. This is what we do. We really dig in, we get very good at our craft, and we learn as much as we can. So nursing, as you said, 90% female, yet less than 20% of healthcare leaders are female. So there are a couple of ways that I think we need to do that. I think we all need to tap a young aspiring leader on the shoulder and mentor them. And particularly, I, I challenge men to do that. Pull a young woman into the circle and help them get their place at the table. And not just into manager, director, VP ranks, but also in the C-suite and also on our boards. Hospital boards quite often are men. 
right? Let's add women to our hospital boards and diversity to our hospital boards. Our board should reflect the communities they serve, just like the workforce of every hospital should reflect the community that it serves. So there are some really amazing opportunities there. What I love about having been in this space for literally over 30 years is I now receive so much gratification and joy by finding young people that I see as a bright light and helping them succeed. I think that's cool as heck. So for me, that's a really neat space to be at this point in my career and reaching out to young people to offer my help and assistance so that they can be the best they can. That's actually kind of cool. And it's kind of fun now that I'm there to be able to do that. And I think seeing more young people move up through the ranks is not only important, it's pretty much necessary because we're seeing chief nursing officers retire at faster rates than ever. And I'll tell you from a young person's perspective, that's not a job many people wanna be in line for. It's 24 seven, it's a tough job. Honestly, it's typically the lowest paid of the C-suite jobs and it's one of the hardest. So I think we need to take a, a pretty well-rounded look at the chief nursing officer, chief clinical officer positions to make sure that we compensate them well, adequately, make those roles successful and doable so that we actually do get younger leaders that aspire to those roles. And then create an opening for people to lean in. If you're in a meeting and you don't see a nurse in the meeting or you don't see a young aspiring leader in that meeting to learn, bring them in, pull them in with you. Same thing for the boardroom. There's no reason that we can't rotate young managers through those meetings. Even if they just sit there and listen, it is a learning opportunity that they don't get today. And I think that not only do we owe that to our professions, we owe that to ourselves because let's face it, at some point down the road, we are going to be the recipients of care. And we want to make sure that they are very educated, astute, and know as much as they can about the industry. Well, Bonnie, as we wrap up our conversation today, I can't help but think about this power of gratitude. And it just happens to be National Nurses Week right now. And I think this is an important time for us to really reflect on the importance of the nursing profession and just how important nursing is and the future of our of our society and ensuring population health and promoting healing and you know gratitude has such a key function of our social lives and our evolution as a species you spoke about earlier about how practicing gratitude at an individual level, it can have profound personal health benefits and promote healing. And there's obviously more that goes into creating a culture of gratitude and that can really lift the performance of the team and create this attitude of gratitude that we need to better serve patients and improve outcomes. As we finished up our conversation today, I, I would just love to hear more from you about tapping into this truly powerful force of gratitude in the healthcare workplace? And what can we do as leaders to create this more patient-centered, value-based care system, especially in light of COVID and the catalyzing effect that it's having on our healthcare system? You know, how can we use this moment right now to really double down on our commitment to express gratitude as the purest expression of love for others? Eric, that's such an awesome question. And I, I think if we all looked back to probably kindergarten, our moms would have said to us, just be nice or just be kind. And in there somewhere was the lesson of just be thankful. It's fascinating because we continue to learn so much about the science of gratitude and literally being grateful and showing gratitude on a regular basis has the ability to rewire your brain. It literally has long lasting positive benefits. And getting into a gratitude practice where you find people to recognize or things to celebrate every single day, you will change your brain plasticity in a very positive and optimistic way. And those things are very simple, they're free, they're easy to do. And the more that we can practice gratitude, whether it's to individuals on our team, whether it's to other leaders, whether it's to our spouses or partners or children, it's not only going to make our lives 
better and more fulfilling, it also makes their day better as well. So by focusing on gratitude, it's truly transformative in the way that we get to see the world. And I would just say that over the last many years, I feel as though we have an opportunity as just a gentle reminder to ourselves to just be kind and just be grateful. It's a really easy way to make things better for everyone. Well, Bonnie, thank you. And I am so grateful that you joined us today in the race to value. Your words of wisdom definitely connect with me in a deep way. And we appreciate your leadership in in our industry. It's my pleasure to spend the time with you and, and Daniel today. I think you are doing such an amazing service to people to bring them different vantage points and perspectives. So thank you for the work that you guys are doing as well.